The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everybody. Nice to see you here tonight. And a big welcome to anybody who's walked through the door for the first time. It's always can be an adventure and can even feel uncomfortable to walk into a new space. So we're doing our best as a community to make the place welcoming for everybody. And uh, we're asking actually for the whole community to help that, especially those of you who've been around. So just have radar for people who might be new. That doesn't mean some people don't want you to sort of intervene. Oh, you're new? In a way, it can be even a little bit uh, off-putting to be asked, oh, you're new? So just uh, be sensitive about how we become a welcoming community. And we've been looking at this central part of our practice now for several weeks, how we work with the thinking mind. So we often, you know, try to relate to our life in a very direct, non-conceptual way, not the thought or idea we have of me or my life, but what does it mean to be a human being? What means being sensitive to the activity of the body and the mind. And by being sensitive to the activity of the body, we mean we're noticing that seeing is being known and hearing is being heard and touches are being felt and sometimes smells and tastes are being smelt and tasted. And there's this other category, that's body, and then this other half of our experience is mental activity being known. The imagining part, the thinking part, feeling, emotional feeling part. This is all the mental activity being known. And both of these things, the physical activity, the five physical senses being known, and mental activity being known, are characterized by ongoing movement. There's never a time when the activity, the sensitivity of the body isn't in motion. So even now, you know, we're seeing, seeing is being known, but it's not a fixed or one-time thing. It's a more like a flow or a river of seeing. Same with hearing, same with the experience of touch. And it's the same with the awareness of mentality or the awareness of thought and emotion, imagining. That's also like a river, just always new, always being renewed. Isn't that right? Always in motion. And that's important, actually, that sense that our experience is always in motion. Because a lot of you who've been studying the Buddhist teachings know that one of the central points the Buddha makes is around dukkha. It's actually sometimes better to use the Pali word than the not-so-well-translated English word of suffering. That's what dukkha often gets translated as. Because things are in motion, because what we call our experience isn't a thing, okay, this is how it is, as if it's a solid, fixed, this moment is this thing. It isn't that way. When we connect to the moment, we connect to that river of physical activity coming and going, mental activity coming and going. No beginning, no end. It just keeps moving, right? So 
one of the deeper senses of dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, the unreliableness, the uncertainty, ungovernableness of experience, is because it's always in motion, always becoming whatever the next moment's becoming. And so we really start to see this, like especially when you do a day-long retreat or go on a longer retreat or just have some more continuity of mindful awareness, you really begin to see this, especially in terms of mental activity, the ongoingness of that you know, narrating mind, that inner dialogue, the thinking mind. It, does, it doesn't stop, right? It just got... And even like even if you're sort of noticing that the thinking mind isn't stopping, you start to think about that thinking doesn't stop. And that just keeps going on. Oh yeah, isn't that so interesting? The mind just keeps thinking. You know, I wonder if everybody else is everybody's mind just thinking. And it's like, but one more time we're just in that river of mentality. One thought leading to the next, it comes with emotion and mental images, right? It's so it's not so simplistic that experience of mental activity. And because the mind and body, in a way that we don't probably completely understand, are tethered, tied together in some way, different but somehow tethered together, right? when we have mental activity, there's often a bodily felt sense, right? And when we have some bodily thing, like we see something or hear something or touch something, it triggers mental activity. So the two or triggering each other, right? Physical activity of seeing, hearing, touching, whatever, triggers mental activity. And mental activity triggers that visceral sense, right? Often emotion is more felt as a bodily sensation. And we can even have, you know, when we're thinking, right, it can trigger seeing. Auditory hallucinations, right? We're thinking about something and it's almost like we're hearing something. So the body and the mind are tied and in this way it's a very seductive thing to be uh, in that sort of basically lost. Being lost or being confused, being trapped and oppressed by experience means that the mind is getting pushed around. It's not really understanding things as they are. And understanding things as they are, we mean that very simple, oh, it's just something being known. So it's not like philosophically complex or subtle. Being awake, right? being wise, means not intellectually, but directly knowing that this experience is just bodily experience being known, being felt, mental activity, mental experience being known and being felt. So it's really a matter of reducing this moment, any moment of our life, to the simple truth that this experience of being Mark, being a human being, is just, in this moment, this experience being known. And we get really good at that, right? If we can train our mind to be interested in that simple reality, that ordinary, simple reality that any moment of my life, but in particular, this moment of my life, is simply something being known. 
And and ultimately, we don't even have to sort of be so tight about like distinguishing distinguishing between the hearing that's being known or the seeing that's being known or the touches that are being felt or the mental imagining that's being imagined or thoughts that are being thought. Because ultimately, it's all it all comes together as this is being known, right? Because the present moment, it's all all of that that's being known. You know, the five physical senses that are being known, and the mental activity, the different aspects of mental activity are being known. They're all being known here and now in what we call the mind, right? Or you could call it the heart. So there's an inclusive sense of that. But it's not easy, right? It's the thing about the problem with the, you know, waking up is that we've been in the habit for a long time of this dependence on our imaginings. So it's hard to come back to that more simple recognition. It's just this being known. Because notice when you try that, like in your own mind now, own heart right now, oh yeah, it's just this being known. It's like, you see how very much the mind wants to abstract it. Yeah, but what's being known, Mark? What is this? Like, is it pleasant? Do I like it? Do I want it changed? Do I want to be at home instead of being here? Is it as good as it was last Sunday? Right. So all of that is in the realm of our interpretation, right? the abstraction into that conceptual interpretation of what's being known. Without the mind, without the wisdom in the mind recognizing that thinking about the now is just a thought being known now. So we're, we're lost in thought. That's what we often say, right? We're lost in thought. We're confused by the thoughts, the mental imagining. Confused by mental you know, imagining thoughts means that there are thoughts and imagining, but there's no wisdom in that moment that understands that's just that being known. That's all. We're missing that piece. That That's really a good operational definition of wisdom is, is there that activity, that mental activity, moment by moment, that's knowing, yep, and now it's this being known. This combination of the movement of body, sight, sounds, sensations, smells, and tastes, and the movement of mind, thoughts, imagining, all of which is just being known here and now, and then Right, because it's only for a moment, and it's always becoming the next moment. So even the moment that's being known isn't really much of anything, because whatever it is that's being known right now is already in the way of disappearing. So the next moment can be arise and be known. Right. So there's a very ephemeral, effervescent quality when we have a more sensitive, clear connection with the present moment. Like sometimes in Buddhist terms, people talk about the groundlessness or the ephemeral nature. But that's not our ordinary perception or our ordinary understanding. Things feel very solid, real, concrete, permanent, 
but it's because we're more in our thought. Our thought is that the world is solid and real and stable and static and dependable. But that's because the mind thinks that. And so it looks through the lens of its thought, its concept, that the world is solid, that I'm solid, and you're over there, and I'm over here, and this is what I do on Sunday night. And But all of that is more an expression of being lost in our perceptions, our thoughts, and stories about life. So I wanted, I, I made a kind of resolve to save more time to hear from people because as we've been talking now, I think almost five weeks about working with the thinking mind, just a little bit more of a clear uh, focus on this particular part of practice this mental activity generally we refer to as thinking, but not just with language, right? Thinking also can be with mental images, comes with the emotional and visceral feeling, emotional feeling that often is there. With thoughts, and even thoughts that are <clears throat> mostly neutral, that's the emotional feeling, right? That neutral affect that goes with char- thoughts that don't have a, like an unpleasant charge or a pleasant charge. So there's often that emotional tone that corresponds with whatever the mind is imagining or thinking. And it's like I've mentioned in the past weeks, like a production studio. We have this amazing capacity, as we know from our nighttime dreams, we have that the mind has this amazing capacity to project, you know, whether you call that perception or imagining, thinking, but to project a reality. So why would I be connected with the experience of the body sitting? Or why would I stay with that simple recognition? Oh, that's just an image being known or a thought being known. Because there's a tendency to just get lost in the story, in the very highly skilled production of whatever story the mind is telling itself. Right? And we forget that the mind is telling itself a story, that that's just that mental activity being known. Right? So the difference between obsessing, for example, like really worrying about something or planning something out, what you're going to say to somebody, and knowing that, ju- that that is just something happening in the mind. Right? It's like a world. It's a different reality knowing that this is happening. Like, Or another example something with a stronger emotional charge, being really angry and knowing, oh yeah, there's a lot of anger and it feels like this. Right? There's like a world of difference. And what you're going to do is going to be quite different when you're just angry, identified with the anger, and when there's that space, that space of wisdom that knows, oh yeah, the heart's really on fire with anger. And it's just that intense mental, emotional, physical activity being known. Just this stuff happening that we call anger. Just that being known, being felt. Yep, just that being known. But we're not, in a sense, sliding into the identification. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, I don't know if any of you caught, he was here this summer, but if you weren't able to go, we had this great program with Joseph when he was visiting to help us celebrate our 25th anniversary, Common Ground's 25th anniversary 
Um, we used some space over at Hamlin University. Anyway, we it was videotaped, and I think it's still on our web, our homepage, if you want to listen. Joseph's a very well-known teacher and sort of responsible for a lot of what we call the insight meditation, Vipassana meditation movement here in the States, coming out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition from Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka. And uh, Joseph said, identification imprisons us in the content of our conditioning. Right? So the content of our conditioning, how we think, I mean, our thinking always seems on the surface interesting, but our thinking is never really that creative. It's only another riff, another reverberation of what we've thought in one way or another before. right? So when we're identified taking our thinking, imagining personally, we're imprisoned. We, we don't ever get out of, as long as we're identified with our thoughts, we never get out of that, the limitations. Right? We're basically doing little riffs on what we've done before. And we can start to notice that, especially if you live a more simple, quieter life, you really start to notice it's like you've got a top 10 list or for the more complex in the room, a top 20 list of you know those mental-emotional patterns. And the particulars might change a little. You might be you know, irritated about this versus being irritated about that. But the basic structure of the mental-emotional pattern is pretty much the same. Or you might be in the if-only-then-I'll-be-happy frame. You know, and then... But, and it might be about changing your car or changing your partner, but the basic structure is pretty much the same. You know, it's just like, and, and they're, not that, they're not that many. And we'll start noticing the same pattern in other people. Oh, they're just doing what I do a lot of the time. You know, they're just running that tape right now. But a lot of the time when we're running a tape caught in a pattern, there's the absence of wisdom that knows that that's what's happening. It's just that happening, just that being known. And that means there's no freedom, right? The mind is literally oppressed, caught up, trapped in that pattern, limited by that pattern. So when I'm in the oh, poor me pattern, but I'm not, there's no wisdom that knows that that pattern is running, then that pattern, my mind, my life rather, my experience as a human being is encapsulated, is trapped, is limited by that mundane and very you know, unpleasant oh poor me pattern. There's nothing outside of that. We're <clears throat> you know, in that narrow world for a while until at some point that bubble gets popped and the mind realizes you know how that is, right? Where we've been in a little vortex for a while and then something breaks the spell and we realize, oh my God, I can't believe I was lost in that for that long. It's so nice to put that aside, to sort of breathe fresh air again. And then we get trapped in some the next thing, whatever it is. So the practice, the freedom the Buddha points to is really... No, no longer to be, to fall into that hole, one of those holes, one of those established patterns in the mind. 
getting lost in thought. There's a great sutta that the Buddha uses, uh, discourse rather, or teaching story, simile that the Buddha uses. He says, just as if a great mass of fire of 10, 20, 30, 40 cartloads of timber were burning, right? huge bonfire, and into it a person would periodically throw dried grass, dried cow dung. I don't know if you know that, but often in uh, less developed places, cow dung, when it's dried well, can be a good uh, source of fuel for a fire. And then dried timber, so that the great mass of fire, thus, thus nourished, thus sustained, would burn for a long, long time. Even so, practitioners, in one who keeps focusing on the allure of those phenomena that offer sustenance. So that literally the word here, the words here are flammable material. Right? So think about that, like when we're paying attention, how we're paying attention to mental activity, we're paying attention in a way that creates flammable material so that the burning of obsessive thinking keeps going. It's like we're throwing fuel into the fire, how we relate to the feeling, how we relate to the mental images and thoughts. Basically, clinging adds fuel to the fire. Taking the mental images, taking the emotional feelings personally, then adds fuel to the fire. I'll explain that in a minute, but let me just finish what the Buddha says here. Even so, practitioner, in one who keeps focusing on the allure of of those phenomena that offer sustenance, craving develops. With craving as a condition, sustenance. With sustenance as a condition, becoming, right? We become somebody. With becoming as a condition, we set in motion the whole, a whole nother round of birth, Aging, illness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, despair, all come into play. Right? So the Buddha uses this image of rebirth. Right? So like I'm sitting, living my life, I'm relatively present, and I remember something, or I have an experience, I see something, and it triggers some kind of thinking. Oh yeah, that's right. I've got to do this thing. Right? And then that trigger something, oh yeah, I got a lot I need to do. I'm never going to get this done. When is this going to end? You know, I need a new life. I got to quit my job. So we're, we basically kind of go down a road and we, and we get reborn into that being that person in that bubble of like, that's one of our tapes, right? I've got too much to do. It isn't fair. I can't be happy when there are these many things on my to-do list. How can I be done with all this doing? Right? So that not that one of our common obsessive patterns? Like, how can I become the person who doesn't have so much who, that has to be done? If only, right? I mean, these patterns are basically similar. We want to become somebody. Somebody without knee pain. Somebody who's younger than they are. Somebody who's... But it's always about becoming. I want to become the person who's home and in my bed, watching an entertaining show, having my favorite hot beverage, 
and maybe a nice snack, right? Or I want to become the person, you know, whatever, who's done with the scary time of my life. Or the become the person who's checked off everything on the to-do list. So it's like when we believe, identify with that, then we're in that becoming. And so the Buddha describes it in sort of rebirth into another life. We take birth. We're now the person who wants to become, who needs to do, who's going to be happy when this is like that, right? And then we're in the throes of them. Then it's like I can't be happy now because in this world that I've just become into, the definition is I won't be happy until it's like this. So that means I'm unhappy now, but will be happy when I get this partner or get rid of this partner or fix my body or fix the world or whatever it is. We're in that bubble that says I'm not happy now, but will be happy when, right? Because whenever there's a craving, whenever there's a sense of something, oh yeah, this will work. Even enlightenment, Buddhist enlightenment, whatever that we imagine that is, we can create suffering with that because we put it out there, which means this isn't it. I can't be happy now. I can't be at ease now because I haven't become what I want to become. And that's that fuel for the fire. And the way that that works, you know, the how the that feedback loop of adding more fuel to the fire, just in very simple terms is, you know, when I'm in the throes of obsessing about something, I have a mental image. Oh, yeah. When I have that cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior and nothing on my to-do list and beautiful weather, 68 degrees, low humidity, nice bright sun with enough shade, right? Cool breeze, but not too windy, vast lake, Mature white cedars, red cedars, Norway pines, white pines, you know, a few, few maples for the fall. Oh, really? And I like moss. <laughs> it never ends, you know, like, you know, and I want one of those metal roofs where you never have to change it. Right? goes on and on like this, you know, ah, then. Right? And then there's a born, you know, we're born into the hunger of like, but the thing on the surface, it's juicy. But underneath, we're hungry because we're not there yet. I don't have it yet. And so then the dynamic is the mental image, imagining the perfect thing or imagining the scary thing, it doesn't really matter, triggers a feeling in the heart, in the body, right? Not having it, the hunger. And then the hunger triggers the mental image. Oh yeah, but when? And that triggers the hunger, the ache, the whatever. And that's the feedback loop. That's why these can go on and on and on and on. Because the feeling tone triggers more mental activity, more imagining, and the imagining triggers a feeling tone, a visceral feeling tone, right? on and on like that. And the mind, the wisdom in the mind doesn't see it. And that's the trap. 
And that's why we can suffer for a long time. Because we don't, you know, we're just not clear what's going on. And even when we're clear enough to know that I'm caught in some obsessive pattern, then we do the same thing. We think, God, if I only if only I could somehow step outside of this obsessive thinking, that would be great. How can I do that? Right? And we um, we project the idea of me without obsessive thinking. And it feels so cool and free and wonderful. And then we feel, oh, I'm not there yet. I'm caught. I want to be there. And so we're back in that dynamic. The idea makes me long for it. And the longing makes me think about it. And the thinking about it makes me long for it. And the longing makes me think about it. And we're one more time in that cycle again. And the way we break that, now this is what we've been talking about. I mean, the first step is just to be aware. Sometimes just being aware of that suffering, that ordinary mental suffering of the mind being identified, or we use the word attached, or grasping that idea, right? Thirsting, clinging to. These are the words we use, the, kind of the visceral words of suffering. The mind is actively grasping. We feel that tightness, actively attached, holding, identifying, and it's oppressive. Maybe subtle sometimes, maybe very obvious other times, but it's always suffering when the mind is grasping. And so the resolution of the grasping is to see the grasping and to see that it's not helpful. So we have to really feel it, but realize that the resolution comes from feeling it. Because we go to the imagining, oh, it would be so nice when this grasping is gone, but it's a, we do that to avoid feeling what it feels like. So we don't take that bait. We don't get confused, we realize this is what wisdom teaches us. It takes a long time to have this realize this wisdom that realizes I just need to feel what I'm feeling here. So if I'm feeling disconnected, discombobulated, or if I'm feeling numb, or if I'm feeling a deep loneliness or longing, or a, a, a profound uneasiness, anxiety, fear, so whatever those sort of more subtle wormy, uh, kind of existential emotional feelings that we have that drives the ongoingness of the obsessive mind, the thinking mind. If we're willing just to learn to rest right in the middle of that uneasy, unpleasant, wormy, unsettled feelings deep in our heart. The Buddha, in this beautiful poem the Buddha wrote or verses, He talks about discovering in the course, he's sharing his own awakening practice, you know, doing what we're doing now, before he kind of woke up and came to a deeper understanding, about discovering deeply embedded, deep, deeply embedded in his heart, a thorn that he had up to that point not noticed. You know, like when we're in real pain, we can do all kinds of thrashing about, and it's a real powerful step in the right direction when we just stop thrashing about and we go, well, okay, what's really going on here? And we kind of come to the essence, oh, 
deep in the heart, there's this thorn that needs to be removed. And thrashing about isn't helping. Getting settled, getting really clear, being willing to be sensitive helps the mind realize what's not being clearly seen, clearly felt, what needs to be removed. We don't need a different life. Like even some of you who have really difficult things going on, like you're in the middle of a divorce or you've got cancer or you're losing a job or looking for a job or have to move or whatever it might be, you know, the difficult stuff folks go through or being oppressed in some way in your life, being mistreated unjustly or something like that. Right? We want to get to this place where we recognize deep in the heart this longing, the heart longing for the conditions, the circumstances of my life to be other than the way they are right now. Now, it doesn't mean we stop doing what can make the world, the circumstances better. It just means that we deal with the thing that's front and center, which is either the denial that my conditions, my circumstances are the way that they are, or hating the way that they are, or longing for them to be different. And we have a moment and maybe moments of understanding, deeply understanding this is how it is right now. And I'm not going to add on to the difficulty of my life right now, like a difficult breakup and the emotional, painful feelings that come with that uncertainty and the heartbreak or whatever one might feel in that situation. I'm not going to add to it any kind of... um, neurotic hating the moment or needing the moment to be different than it is because the moment is this way. right? Some of you who have had uh, really painful grief, you've lost somebody dear to you, you've discovered this sometimes, not always, but in moments of your grieving where you've realized really being intimate and open to the pain of loss is so liberating. And working hard to avoid the pain of loss is so exhausting and painful. It's really hard, though, to stay in that sweet spot where we're willing to feel what it feels like to have lost that person. We're really relaxed in that place. It's very unpleasant, but we're not adding any suffering to the unpleasantness of loss, the pain of loss, or whatever the pain might be. You could be in a really unfair situation where you're being mistreated, and it's really not okay, and it's really not fair, and you really need to do something about it, and other people maybe need to do something about it. But in this moment, what you're doing is you're realizing that your heart has its, the wisdom in your heart has the capacity to completely own, feel, meet what that feels like to be treated unjustly. Oh yeah, it hurts like this. So you're not wasting energy. You're not struggling to deny. 
And then from that place of having, in a sense, made peace with how painful it is for the conditions to be the way that they are, because you're not wasting, not distorting your mind, pretending it's different, pretending it shouldn't be this way, then the mind is much more clear to sense what would be the skillful way to respond, the powerful way to respond to the difficulty that the mind is facing or that you're facing in your life. So this is really the resolution. And I'll leave it here so that we have time well, I'll just mention that the you know the other half of that discourse I read about throwing more timber into the fire is he gives he basically repeats the same thing except he says and the person doesn't add more fuel to the fire right and because the person isn't adding more fuel to the fire right he says so that the great mass of fire its original sustenance being consumed and no other being offered would without nourishment go out. Even so, practitioner, and one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena that offer sustenance, craving stops, right? So we're realizing, I could think about this, I could react in this way, but I don't want to add more fuel to the fire. So I'm going to open, I'm going to see clearly, I'm going to feel what's here to feel, because to do anything else is to deviate from being present being intimate, being compassionate compassionate and wise with the way that it is right now. And it's changing, like I said at the beginning of the talk, it's a very dynamic thing. And we're staying right in the middle because anything else is adding fuel to the fire. So this is what really sustains present moment awareness is realizing that anything other than present moment awareness, that intimacy, that kind and wise intimacy, is adding fuel to the fire. And this is what, the, remember Nibbana, the word Nirvana, Nibbana, the word the Buddha used for freedom, enlightenment, awakening, means, it's an, it, at the time of the Buddha, it was an ordinary word, Nibbana, Nirvana, for a fire going out. I use those two words because one is Pali, Nibbana, and Nirvana is Sanskrit. So these are two early Indian languages. Hindi is related to these languages. Pali is more sort of the earlier form, and then over the centuries, the scriptural language in Buddhism became Sanskrit, but Pali was a little earlier. And so our tradition, the Theravada tradition that Kamagran is connected with, comes out of the Pali scriptures or the Pali, uh, the teachings were recorded in the Pali language. So that's Nibbana versus Nirvana. So they're similar, just like Dhamma for the way it is or Dharma or the same word, just from different traditions. But let me leave it here. So we have 15 minutes. It'd be nice. We've all been working with our thinking mind for a long time now. What have we learned? What holes do we keep falling in? How do we get tricked, in a sense, into cycles of suffering? What questions do you have about what I've been saying these last weeks? What would you like to ask or share with the group? How have you worked with your thinking mind? How does your thinking mind get the best of you? Yeah, Jean, please start us off. The the thing about the to-do list and wanting to be the person who's done with everything on the list, that's that's a big one for me. And um, 
I don't have the solution. I mean, I thought of something like, well, I should just name just three things that I'll get done tomorrow morning instead of, you know, 12. Um, but <laughs> I really want to ask. I, I didn't quite gather up the wisdom or the, what can I do instead of being the person who wants to get everything on my list done? Yeah, making peace with not being the person who gets everything done. And surprisingly, it might help you get more done. But it's the same thing. What do we do with death? Because it's really the same issue. It's just maybe, for some of us at least, a bigger deal than getting the to-do list done. Or whatever is most scary. How do I deal with being in a relationship with another human being that I can't depend on? Because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who this person is, ultimately, in the deepest sense. It's uncertain, right? I can pretend that it's certain. That's one strategy. But there's always the nagging thought underneath that, yeah, but maybe it is uncertain, right? So maybe I should bring that to the fore and make peace that I'm in a relationship that's uncertain. I have a body that's uncertain. My to-do list is uncertain, right? So what is that like? knowing that we may or may not get things done, that we may or may not continue to leave, live, that our relationship may or may not continue. So if we make peace with everything that might happen, even the things we can't imagine, then what's the problem? You see? So there's something about owning, like when something triggers reactivity, then to look at, well, what's, What's really the problem here? Oh, I don't want this to happen. Okay. So I could either really work hard to control reality so that doesn't happen, or I could make peace with the probability, however small, that it might happen. Okay, so this might happen. So once that's why we often, the Buddha often suggests that we meditate on death, because for many people, that's the most scary thing. So when you make peace with non-existence, then there's not too much that scares us. It's not like something we can do in one gulp, right? But we work on it. Or whatever it is, public humiliation, that might be, you know, somebody knowing the one thing you don't want anybody to know. Or maybe they find out, you know, what you do when no one's looking. Oh. It's really useful to, uh, in a very direct way, acknowledge what we're afraid of. And to sort of make peace with the fear, however long it takes. And that's what breaks the cycle, because it's the thinking about the fear that re-triggers the fear, that triggers more thinking, and then we're in the endless loop of thinking and obsessing, And when we get exhausted with one drama, we pick up another drama, and then we pick up another. And we spend our whole life jumping from drama to drama, never really resolving what's feeding the drama, which is not wanting to feel that deeper existential uneasiness, not willing to rest in the middle of that. Yeah, Thanks, Jane, for bringing that up. Yeah, please, Leah. Thanks, Mark. There's so many things that come to mind, but just want to share where my practice is right now and what I've been noticing. Um, 
working on really trying to eliminate those negative thoughts about self or about others or about these ideas of others and myself. And it's like cleaning house, you know, all these um, um, habits of the mind. And really what I've noticed is definitely more space. I've been able to notice when that comes up more, like, oh, this person or Donald Trump or whatever else, and just uh, it's unnecessary to have these negative thoughts. Um, But then I drop in more and notice, like, my children playing or um, the sun hitting that blade of grass or snow or whatever. So, yeah, just there's a lot that's shifted and I can catch myself sooner and I really feel the benefits of that. Yeah. And that's a really good point because I I haven't brought that up in the talk and that point of the more we pop these drama bubbles, it's like all of a sudden we start living. We're connected in a way and the, the simple beauty of, feeling and seeing and connecting with the ordinary experience of being a human being. It's not that it's special. What's special, what makes it special is the absence of the neurotic spinning. It's not the light on the blade of grass that's special. It's that the mind is, in that moment, relatively free of that neurotic activity. And so there's a sense of wholeness. And it's like a religious experience, but in Buddhist terms, we always talk about it as being ordinary. It's the being lost in the neurotic activity that's extraordinary. Yeah, thanks, Leah, for sharing with us. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, Laura, and then we'll go to Laura. <laughs> uh, I had an interesting experience, uh, I think, last week. Um, I think I was like lost in one of my routine dramas and then I was like where do I feel this in my body and then I'm like oh it's in I feel sensation in my stomach and then yeah so there was like a lot of suffering here in this situation and then and then I was like can you point to the suffering like point it like where is it and then it was like nowhere to be found, which I was like, whoa. Because <laughs> it just like deconstructed and it was just like sensation. And that was that was all there was. And yeah, so I wanted to share that. Yeah, no, it's powerful insight, right? Because the suffering requires the delusion where the mind's lost, not clearly seeing the mental activity, that dance that we've been talking about. So as soon as you ask the question, that was really the voice of wisdom, that curiosity, where's the suffering here? And in that moment, there was a big change in the mind, Laura's mind, where the mind became the mind that wanted to see things as they are. So the main ingredient necessary for suffering was uprooted in that moment, right? The mind being lost in the pattern, not aware. So all of a sudden you couldn't see it because as soon as the mind takes the role of the one who wants to see clearly, I just want to see, I just want to understand. Because I care, 
I just want to see clearly. Then the suffering's already, if not completely popped, gone, it's very soon to be gone. Because that mindful presence doesn't allow for suffering to persist. Try. Try observing uh, mindfully that clear, kind, non-judging, non-reactive awareness. Try observing suffering. It doesn't last long. Pain may persist. You know, you can be aware of chronic pain, emotional or physical pain, but the reactivity, the not liking the physical pain, the emotional pain, won't be there. Because there's just something about the mind that when there's that wise, spacious presence, it doesn't allow for the identification. It's like one or the other. So the easiest way to remove suffering is to be mindfully aware. Try it. Don't ju- it's not an idea to believe in. It's something to check out. And your example or is a perfect example of how and how surprising it is to see a moment ago I was a suffering being. I was a completely sure of that. And now, quite literally, it's nowhere to be seen. It's sensation. Some of it may be unpleasant sensation, but there's nobody who's having a problem with it. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks for sharing with the group. Laura, did you want to share? Thank you very much, Mark. So I noticed that a lot of what you spoke tonight was on our relationship to the material world. And in yoga philosophy, when you start to lose your grip on the material world and you start to transition more to the spiritual, a quality called tapas manifests. And that's basically a burning desire to find God in yoga. In Buddhism, I take that to be like the burning desire that causes monks to want to wander through the wilderness for four months and, you know, uh, live alone. So as we begin to loosen our hold on our mind and we begin to listen more closely to our heart, does that and how would that change how we relate to our mind and then how we act? Yeah, well, that tapas, uh, which I think sometimes gets translated as fire, but that spiritual heat, right? You see that just in sitting for 30 minutes or 45 minutes and there's the desire to move or go eat something or think something. But just that that willingness to recognize. And have you noticed like when you're aware, like you're sitting and you're aware that there's an ache in the body, but but there's a real stable awareness of the painful sensations in the knee or the back, whatever it might be. But as soon as the mind gets distracted, the pain is overwhelming. But if the mind is just aware of the painful sensations, right, there can be this tapas that Laura's talking about, where the, it's the not deviating from the way that it is. Like That's what's predominant right now. The knee hurts. Painful sensations are being known. But because of the integrity of the awareness, it's like I'm not thinking about how much I don't like the pain in the knee. <clears throat> it's just the throbbing being known, the aching being known. But with not, there's no part of the mind wanting to fix it or wanting to think about it or, oh, poor me, or if only it were done. or It's just throbbing being known, throbbing being known without the words, right? And there's a lot of tapas. And you'll notice that as long as the mind is right in the center, it's totally workable. But when the mind gets distracted and starts to think about something, 
then unconsciously part of the mind is like, oh, this pain is bothering me, right? It's got this story that it's identified with. And now there's a suffering being again. So tapas is when we find that that sort of we're in the middle of a spiritual practice and it's really working. And the heat is really about like any, it sort of keeps us right in the center. And whenever we start to lose it, it heats up very quickly. We start to burn. It keeps it coming back. It's sort of like that barometer. And you'll see life, you know, the more you do this practice, we always joke that we should have the sign on the door that says, watch out. If you take up the practice, you're going to become a more sensitive human being. You're just going to feel things more. Everything. And you can also feel what other people are feeling. You're going to just be more sensitive in that way. And life will become more and more unbearable because you're more sensitive. And the only resolution to being more sensitive, because nobody who's becoming more sensitive really consciously will choose to go back to numbness and distractedness. From a point of view of clarity, it doesn't ever make sense to choose, consciously choose, you know, I think I'm going to become more numb or more distracted or more in denial. I mean, we can slip back into those habits, but we don't do it consciously. So when we become more sensitive, then the only way forward is I need wisdom to catch up with the deepening sensitivity, the wisdom of non-grasping, the wisdom of knowing how like to be in the center and to really become a student of that heat of tapas because it's teaching me like when I'm burning, whenever there's suffering, it's because my mind has deviated from being right in the middle of my life. That's our teacher. That tapas is really our teacher. Because like, normally when we, an, from an ordinary point of view, when I'm suffering, it's either somebody else's fault or life is screwing me or it's not fair. That's, my, that's an ordinary human interpretation of me suffering. But from a spiritual point of view, it's like suffering, okay, honey, I'm deviating from my practice. This heat of suffering, of not liking what's going on or hating somebody or hating something or wanting something or not feeling good enough, feeling a lot of shame. Okay, what needs to be felt? And it's like we start having radar for going right to where we don't want to go because when we go right to where we don't want to go, there's none of that heat. We're in that sweet spot. Doesn't mean it's pleasant. It could be completely unpleasant because it's often what we don't want to see, don't want to feel, don't want to uh, like recognize. Oh yeah, this is what it feels like to be <coughs> me. This is what it feels like to be a human being with these conditions. This world, being aware, being awake to this world with this body in this moment. Because it like. For some of you, the diff- most difficult thing would be being aware of something that's really confusing and ambiguous. Other people will be like feeling trapped. Like, like it or not, I don't really have any options in this p- particular place. I already have this kid. This is already my cat. Or whatever it is. You know, I have this body. There are only so many things I can do with this aging body. 
or this body of this shape or of this particular with these particular characteristics. So maybe like really more honestly landing right in the middle of that, not deviating from the truth of our conditions, our circumstances. And it's not about being fair or not fair. It's just the way it is. It's like what actually pragmatically is skillful. Being honest is skillful. Thanks for the great comments, everyone. We need to leave it here. It's 8.30. We'll just take a few moments. Let go of the words. You can pass the mic back to Jean at the back of the room. We'll just have a 30 seconds of silence. Let go of the words. Feeling what we feel. Not afraid to be real with the conditions. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Always nice to be here together to reflect on these teachings from the Buddha. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.